Well, it's great to be back to Luke chapter 20, and this has not changed. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's Word. I believe every word is true, and it's all that I need. Yeah, when you start kind of after a break like we had and, and did the Psalms enough to get back into Luke 20, you know, I'm just, I just went back to Luke 1 a minute. I just wanted to see, okay, you know, and, and like I, did, I prayed, Luke, we know that he's a Gentile, he's a medical doctor, he's probably a product of Paul's teachings, but this man fell in love with Jesus so much that being the kind of personality he was and being the kind of, of detailed person he was, he wanted to make sure that, that everything that he knew about Jesus was investigated and true. And, and so he would ask certain people, and, and I, we believe that Mary was one of them. And, and he just wanted to know so much. And then as we saw that he was writing this letter to a friend of his, somebody that was very special, that he didn't want Theophilus to miss knowing Jesus like he knew him. And so that's why he too didn't want to send anything that wasn't true to him. So he made sure. And so when you read those first few first few verses of Luke, it almost gives you such a comfortable, confident feeling that what you're going to be studying is just absolutely the truth. And, and another thing that, that I think I, we've noticed in the weeks of Luke is that, that Luke is really talking to church people. And he really wants to make sure that we know the truth. That, because so often we're a product of our environment and we, we believe because, because this is the way we were taught. You know, and, and I think that's why there's different denominations and all this kind of thing. But I think Luke shows us that that there's no better place to go than to God's word, to know what truth really is, and to watch that truth change your life. And, you know, he was so detailed, you know, he talked about John the Baptist and, you know, his Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and Gabriel and, and then the detailed birth. And, and then, of course, you know, Jesus circumcised at eight days and then we don't hear about him until he's 12, he's in the temple and he's about his father's business. And, and then, of course, we don't really hear much about Jesus' life until he starts his earthly ministry. And then we see that Jesus is baptized, he's tempted now, why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized, and why does he, why is he tempted? And you know, this is so precious because Jesus wanted to make sure that he identified us with us in every way. He wanted to make sure that that he understood what we were going through, and that we could know that he understands everything we're going through. That we have that confidence that when we go to him, he completely understands. And then, you know, we watched, you know, him, Luke, detail so much of Jesus' teachings and his miracles. And, but yet there was these religious leaders that were just right from the start, always nitpicking, always trying to get him in some way, trap him. And, and how he just handled that. And then how he chose the 12 and why he picked the 12 that he picked. You know, he picked plain old fisherman. He picked a tax collector. He picked Judas. You know, why did he pick those particular 12? You know, why would he pick someone like Judas when he knew full well of what Judas was going to do? And, and I think that's just classic of Jesus. He wants to make sure we understand that you can be as religious as they come. You can be raised in it, like I'm sure Judas was. He was a Jew, probably raised in the Jewish faith and with his family. And, and yet you can follow Jesus for three years, watch the same miracles as the other 11 did, and hear the teachings that the other 11 did, and yet choose not to believe. And in fact, absolutely forsake him, really. To absolutely betray him. I mean, how can someone do that? But I think what, what an enlightening thing for us to make sure we are always looking at our lives to make sure that we are real and that we're just not religious, that we have a relationship with Jesus. You know, Jesus made sure that we knew that his message was repent or perish. You know, Jesus is not complicated. 
I mean, he was such a great storyteller, and he made sure that his stories were relatable, that they would understand that earthly part, but then how that related to the heavenly part. He made sure that it was no nonsense, that he was, he was right on the mark, and that, that it was very much non-negotiable. His terms, the gospel, the way of salvation, he made that so clear. He made it very clear that it's your choice. But if you don't follow the terms of humbling yourself and repenting and taking that walk to the cross and accepting the grace and the blood of Jesus covering your sins, if you do not do that, you will perish. In fact, we even saw him say the words, you will go to hell. And it's a real place. He made sure that we knew that our heart soil is so important. When we hear him talking to us, what kind of heart soil do we have? Are we receiving it? Is our heart soil so nourished and it's so ready to receive that it will grow roots so that not only do we hear it, in our head, but that it's taken root in our heart, and that's where the Holy Spirit can start changing our lives, that we are never the same. He makes sure we know that even though in the Old Testament, judgment was, was pronounced pretty much right, right there. That's why Old Testament is really sometimes tough to listen to. It's tough to really see all the wars and the killings and but Jesus wanted to, or God wanted to show us right off the bat what he thinks of sin and there's consequences. I mean, even for his own people. To take the nation that he had, that he had grown, that Jesus was going to come through. And to see this nation divide into two parts. You have the kingdom of Israel and you got the kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Israel was so bad. It was so rotten. They didn't have one good leader. They didn't have one good king. And Jesus said, well, you're going down. And to have a pagan nation like Assyria come and just take over, never to hear from the kingdom of Israel again. That's God's people. He is firm on what he says. Kingdom of Judah, a couple good kings, but not many. You know, we studied Daniel. We know that Jeremiah had, had said he spent so much of his life making sure people knew, if you don't repent, there's going to be consequences. Didn't you learn from your fellow people? How he writes one book called Lamentations because he laments. He is the weeping prophet because they just won't listen. And so the consequences, we saw Nebuchadnezzar come right in and we saw from Daniel that everything that Jeremiah said was going to happen, that God told him to say, it happened. So that's the way God deals with sin and consequences. Now, yes, we are living in the, in the time of grace, and sometimes people get confused thinking that that means that, that God's not so serious about sin anymore. But that is so not true. Because there's going to be a judgment day when he... We, when he will make everything right. And I'm telling you, sin will be dealt with either at the cross through our Savior or when we're face-to-face -face with him on Judgment Day. And unfortunately, then it's too late. We will be facing our judge. And, and these are, this is scripture. He made it clear that we can understand all that. This is very serious. And now Jesus is, is winding down, and we see how much he, he's, I mean, he wept. Remember, right before we, we broke, he was weeping over Jerusalem because they just were not responding. But he doesn't waste an opportunity. He goes into that temple. He tells Zacchaeus to come down. <laughs> he tells Zacchaeus to come down because I'm going to your house today, Zacchaeus. <laughs> We see that beautiful story, but then we see how he goes into that temple. And yes, he does whip over those tables. And yes, he does say, you have taken my father's house, the house of prayer, and you have made it into a den of robbers. He knows that he's got limited days. And yet, what does he keep doing? Even though he knows they're, gonna tr they're trying to kill him, he keeps teaching and preaching. And that's where we start 
today. Luke chapter 20, one day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, don't you just love it? He just wouldn't stop. He's teaching the people the greatest news, the life-changing news, the salvation news. He will not stop. And while he's trying to save people and show them another way to live, you've got the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders. They came up to him. I mean, if you put yourself in this story, you can just, you know, in, in the latter part of the chapter, Jesus kind of describes these men and, and you know, they're, they're robed in such fancy robes and they carry themselves with such an arrogance. And, and so you can kind of picture and they're, they're conjugating together and, you know, they're, they're again going to try to trip them up with this question. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. And they're probably t talking about what he did in the temple. He, they're probably talking about the way Jesus stands with such confidence preaching this gospel because he knows it's the truth and he knows who he is. So I'm sure he talked with such authority. And so they said, no, what authority? What, tell us what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? You know, I think sometimes you hear Jesus answer a question with a question. You know, it can, it can be when people do that to you, you, you kind of want to say, hey, just answer me. Answer my question. But, and Jesus isn't trying to be sarcastic or, you know, he, he really isn't trying to be smart, Alec. No, he's just trying to get them to see their ignorance. You wonder, you wonder if Jesus would just love to say, you really, you're really going to ask me these questions, huh? Have you ever won a debate with me? Have you, have you ever not seen me answer these questions in just the most right way that you are stumped every time? You haven't learned that yet? So he's not trying to be sarcastic or smart aleck. He's just trying to, I think, show them their ignorance. And trying to get them to see and so it, it really worked because it said they discussed it among themselves. So they're, they're getting together discussing this and they say, you know, they know he got us again. Because if we say from heaven, he will ask them, why don't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And so they answered we don't know where it was from. I mean, that had to been that had been quite hard for those those you know smart Alex because they had to admit they didn't have any answer to his question because they knew that either answer was going to not be a good one for them anyway. So Jesus answered, "Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Neither will I tell you." And again, I don't think he's trying to be just so smart or so sarcastic. I think it's kind of like the last chapter of the book of Revelation where, where you know, Jesus is telling John to write this down. And if you're going to be vile, then be vile. I mean, you know, after 66 books, the final chapter, and I have told you every way possible. I have made sure that I've tried every kind of approach and you still choose not to believe, not because you haven't been told and not because you don't understand. It's because you don't want to believe. You don't want to. It's, it's on you. And I think he's pretty much saying, you know what, I could stand here and just explain to you again why I can speak with this authority, but I've already told you who I am. And you've chosen not to believe, so we'll move on. And then verse 9, he starts telling, again, this parable. But it's not that he gives up. He, he then changes 
He changes his way by, okay, I'm going to, because he was so good at this. So he told this parable, and, and, and being that this was a parable, I had an earthly story, this whole vineyard tenant kind of thing would be totally understood back then. And so Jesus says, a man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. I just wonder when they started to realize that he was talking about them and that God owned this vineyard. And he put the Jewish people in charge as tenants. And because they were not listening, because they were not following, he sent a prophet. He would send, he would send someone to remind them to repent. And if you don't repent, the consequences are severe. But so often the prophets were treated with such anguish. They were treated so terribly. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir. They said, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Boy, was that a wrong move, wasn't it? But see, look how arrogant they had become. Look how they thought that if we get rid of the son, this will all be sad. This will all be ours. And I think that's the way the religious people of the day, the day thought. Let's get rid of him. He is causing trouble. And then, if we get rid of Jesus, then we can get back to where we were. And we were the hierarchy. We were the leaders. And we were the head honchos. And people looked up to us. And so it says, so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then? Jesus goes on and says these words, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. You would think that they would start shivering a little bit. You would think that they would start kind of reminiscing, yep, that's what God did. He would give warnings, and he would say, if you do not repent, if you do not do what I command you to do, there are severe consequences. And like I said, Jesus did that to his own people, even, to make sure that we understood him clearly when it came to sin. And so, obviously, he then sent and let the gospel go to the Gentiles, now, when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. I think we've got a mixed group here. I mean, I think you've got some people who are listening and saying, oh, what a terrible story. May that never happen. That's awful. But then you've got the religious leaders who are, I think, are connecting the dots. And they, too, could be saying, may this never be. But they're saying it in a whole different kind of attitude. And Jesus knew the kind of attitude that they had. In verse 17, I think this is very critical that, that for me, in, in my red letter edition, these black letters, like Luke put this in here, because to me this detail is incredibly important. Jesus looked directly at them. Now, have you ever had somebody, because I don't think his, his look was one of, um, you know, fun and fluff. When he looked directly at them, I mean, you're talking serious business. If somebody looks at you with that kind of look, I'm sure his eyes could just pierce right through them. And I don't think for one second that when Jesus looked at them that he, he didn't want them to listen and they now had to listen. I don't think that they could even turn away. 
So Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning? Maybe Jesus just heard these religious men and these synagogue leaders. Maybe he had just heard them quote Psalm 118, 22 in the, in the synagogue. Because, I mean, they knew the Psalms. They knew the Old Testament. They took pride in getting up there and speaking the Old Testament scripture. And so it's like, it's like Jesus said, then what is the meaning of that which is written? I mean, you can quote it, but if you don't know what it means. So he says these couple of lines. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the cornerstone. So Jesus knows that they know that scripture. So he's directly looking at them and said, do you know what it means? Do you know who it's about? The stone that is so much rejected, that is the stone that's the foundation stone, the cornerstone. And I think it doesn't take an engineer to totally know this. I mean, I'm far from it, but I get the idea that you cannot build unless you start with a strong structure. And so the capstone, the cornerstone is necessary if you want to build upon it. And then verse 18, after he quotes that one verse, he makes this statement, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. You take a look at that verse, and it's very clear that there's something very important about this stone, and everyone is going to be affected by that stone one of two ways. So he starts with everyone who falls on that stone what does that mean? The person who falls on that stone. Now remember, the stone, the cornerstone is Jesus. And when you fall upon that stone, well, how do we walk to the cross humbly? It's like all yourself has been exposed and, and you have no place to go but to fall on your knees and break into pieces. And I know that, that doesn't sound really nice, does it? I mean, it's not one of those fun experiences, but that's why I always say that the day of your salvation starts out to be the worst day of your life because you have to be exposed to yourself. And that, that is just simply the most difficult thing when you have to get right in the mirror and fess up to who you are. You are so humbled. You are so needy. You are absolutely nothing without him. You are lost without him. You cannot save yourself, no matter what you've achieved, no matter who you are. And so you've got one of two choices, how you're going to work with this stone. You can either fall on it and fall to pieces. That self is broken to pieces. That pride is broken into pieces. And then verses like, I am not my own. I belong to the one who paid for me. I've been bought with a price. I've been crucified with Christ no longer. I that lives, it's Christ that lives within me. I mean, it's when those verses come into the realization that I self has been broken to pieces on the cornerstone. That is salvation. But if you're, if you're not going to fall on the stone and have that kind of relationship with him, well then it says, but... He on, on whom that stone falls will be crushed. Just like if you, if you um, like we said about judgment, I mean, if you don't deal with your sin here at the cross, then you will deal with him at judgment as your judge. And when he says those words, I never knew you. When he casts you into hell because of the consequences of what he warned you time and time again, you talk about a crushing, and it's too late. So verse 18, I think, is such a fundamental verse. That verse really is the crux. I mean, there, here's my choice. Am I willing to take the cornerstone, the foundation stone, Jesus, and am I willing to 
fall on and break myself into pieces so that it's no longer I that lives, but Christ in me? Or am I going to live the way I want down here and then to watch that stone crush me in is too late? The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. See, this is, I shouldn't really say the word, but I can't come up with a better one. They're not stupid. You know, they hear, they hear this story, and it doesn't take you know, too much to, un, to understand that he is talking about them. And, and, and Luke even admits they knew, they knew that was them. But they were afraid of the people. Now, when you look at that phrase, I think you have a tendency to go, well, why would they be afraid of the people? And I don't think they were afraid of what the people would do to them physically. I think they were afraid of the people because they were afraid of once they saw them exposed for what they really were, all of a sudden, the people would not at all, they would not at all be impressed with them the way they are now. I think they are more afraid of how the people were going to look at them now. If they really were exposed for what they truly were. So they did nothing. And then verse 20, keeping a close watch on him. So now we go into another segment. It's like, like I said before, they don't let up. So keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. You know, they've got this all figured out. They know that the Jews themselves cannot, you know, pronounce crucifixion. They want Jesus dead. They want him, they want him nailed on that cross, and they knew the only way that that could happen is if the Romans did it. So they're going to do everything in their strength and power to get the people all riled up and, and so that the governor finally just announces him and it's exactly how it happened. Because the Romans are the ones that had to announce the crucifixion. But, but the thing, the point here that I thought was so sad is look at the religious leaders and look at their heart condition. I mean, they can look so squeaky clean, so polished on the outside, but their hearts are just so rotten to the core because look what, look what they're thinking. They're, they're, they send spies who pretend to be honest. They hope to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. I mean, look at the plotting Look at the dishonesty. And it doesn't end there. Look, it says, verse 21, so the spies questioned him. These spies, they come to him and they call him teacher. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. I'm thinking, that's just such a bunch of baloney. What are they trying here? Now they're trying, you know, they've, they've been deceitful. Their heart is just so bad. And this is the ramifications of a bad heart. And then you start seeing them use flattery. You know, a lot of us like to hear nice things said about us, you know. I mean, we're suckers to that. The one person who isn't is Jesus. And he knows they don't mean that for anything. They're just, they're just trying to use that to butter them up so that then they can slam them again. Because I think when they come up with this question, I think they're thinking, we got him this time. There is just no way that he's going to get out of this. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know, they've got this all figured out. If he says, no, you don't have to. Well, then, of course, the Romans are going to get all riled up. But if he says, yes, you do, well, then, you know, then the Jews are going to get all riled up because, you know, then you're really not pronouncing Jesus, you, the sovereign God of your people. Then 
bunch of lies. They thought they really had him here. Look at, he saw through their duplicity. I don't know, that was, that was the word used in my version. And I can kind of figure out what it was, but I went to the dictionary and it didn't fail me because duplicity, Jesus saw right through their duplicity. Deceit. You know, double, trying to live double-sided. You know, and he saw right through through that. And he said, show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Now, I'm going to take a little sidetrack a minute because I, when I was studying this, I decided to get a quarter out. You know, apparently that coin, you know, it's important because it's got things on it that you're supposed to know and if it was important to Jesus, take out a denarius and see whose picture's on it. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get a quarter. And I looked at that quarter, and I mean, I know that on, the, on our money, it says, in God we trust. I, I know that. But I didn't know. And maybe I was taught it. I'm, I shouldn't say that I wasn't taught it, because I probably was, but I probably either wasn't listening or didn't care. All I cared was that it was worth 25 cents. But this time I cared, so I looked at the quarter. And on the quarter, yep, I found in God we trust, but also on every coin, there's the word liberty. But then there's also, there's this, I mean, you've got to look real, real close. You've got to look real, real close. But there's a Latin phrase. And even though, yeah, it kind of rings a bell to me, but I didn't care. But this time I looked, and that little land phrase is e pluribus unum. And that phrase means out of many, one. And I thought, why, why are people talking about this? Why isn't that on the news? Why, why doesn't some of these newsmen say, or newswomen say, get a quarter out? That will cut everything. That will solve all the problems. This nation was based on, in God we trust. And this United States of America, we stand for liberty. And it probably would have put in justice for all if there was room, but at least there was liberty on there. And the whole idea is, and we have had these people coming from all different ways, and they're all different colors and cultures, and, and they've immigrated, immigrated from here and there, and, and we're all unique, and, and we're many, and yet we come as one, the United States of America. I mean, how simple can you get it? Now, I know, I know that that was just a little, little sidetrack, but I, I was taken by that. I'm glad I know that now. And on our money, it shows what our United States stands for. So he said to them, because the answer was, well, Caesar's picture is on it. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God, what is God's? Now, you have, you've said that, you've quoted that many times. So I, you knew the answer. You knew that Jesus answered it that way. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. What a profound answer. I mean, it's very clear that Jesus is saying, while you live on this earth and, and you have the benefits of this country, and even Paul says it in the book of Romans, you are to obey your government. You can complain, you can not like it, you can, you can not agree, all this kind of stuff, but you are to obey the government. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Give, give what you need to give physically. You live in this country, you owe it. But give to God what's God's. And what is he saying there? He's saying, I want your inside. 
I want your inside. I want your heart. I want your soul. I want you. That's the real you. Because we have learned throughout Luke, Jesus, it's not that he doesn't care about our exterior. It's just that that is secondary to what he wants us to see about our heart and her soul. The part of us that lives forever. He said, that's the part I want. And when you think about our exterior, I mean, it just makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because James says, our outside is like a mist. It's here today, gone tomorrow. We've learned that from dust we came and from the dust we will return. I mean, that's basically what our physical makeup is. So Jesus is saying, I want you to give me your inside. I want the part, that part of you. So that answer was extraordinary. And they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. You wish they had stayed silent, don't you? But we move on because they don't stay silent. This whole chapter is about them just not stopping. Now you're talking, you're talking the, you know, the Sadducees. The Sadducees who, who are a part of the Sanhedrin, but this particular part of the Sanhedrin, it's like they're, they're the liberals. They're the modern liberals. And they only believe the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, but as I, was, as I was looking at the Sadducees, typical, if something came across in those books that they didn't like, they just pretended that, they just omitted that too. And if, they, if, if, it, meant, if it meant better for them to compromise with the Romans, <laughs> then they would. I mean, anything that would affect them in a better way. And the one thing about them was that, and this is the part that we really need to recognize in this particular scripture passage, is that they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's, they're just notorious for not believing in the resurrection. And yet, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with the question, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? You read that. You've heard that story. I've heard that story. But this time I thought, could it gotten any more nasty? They don't believe in the resurrection, so this is one big old fat ridicule. This was just downright mean. And this is how Jesus handles it. I mean, you know, I just gotta know how to handle difficult people the way Jesus does. Because this, when you know that they were just trying to be so nasty to him, and how he just stayed composed and he replied. And he goes on with this explanation. And as much as this chapter broke my heart for Jesus' sake, this, these next words were so joy-filled for the believer. So Jesus kind of goes and explains to these Sadducees, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. He starts kind of from the beginning and says, you know, I understand. This is all you know. On this, in this world, you, this is what you do. You marry and, given, and you're given in marriage. So that's all you understand. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age, what is that age? That age is the age that the Sadducees were just talking about, you know, the next life. 
But the thing that got me is the way Jesus said, but those who are considered worthy. What must happen for you and I to be considered worthy to be a part of the next stage? And obviously we know that the only way that we can become worthy because there's nothing we can possibly do is again, humble ourselves, see ourselves the way we truly are and walk to the cross and accept Jesus and receive him as our savior because we need salvation so badly. And that is the criteria to make you and I worthy to be able to be a part of the next age. But then he says, in that age, there will be no marrying or giving in marriage. So he's saying, I just want you to know, I'm not going to go and explain because your human brains, as much and as great as they are, they cannot comprehend. So you're just going to have to trust me when I try to say this life and the next life are so completely different. There's just no comparison. So what you're used to doing here is just not going to be even necessary. But the one thing I think Jesus wants us to see is that you'll never be disappointed. You'll never say, oh, and it's because, see, I think he, he understands that. You know, like Tom and I, we've been married 50 years. We got married when we were 20. So we have been together, the two shall become one, for 50 years, 30 years longer than when we were, than we were single. So this is basically, I mean, I can't even fathom and I think when you do have a marriage like that, I think you read a passage like that and you think, oh, shoot. I kind of I wanted to know that he was going to be with me for all eternity. But the thing is, he will be. It's just that it's going to be different and you're not going to care because your new relationship the face-to-face -face relationship, that real relationship, when you see Jesus, it seems like everything else is going to take second place. And, and by the way, you can't be married to that. You can't be married to that person because you're already married to the Lamb, the Bride of Christ, sitting at the wedding feast. I know, to me, that sounds exciting because I know, because he's going to go on and he's going to tell me, Tom will be there. You'll know him. Oh, I'm sure you'll be talking to him. And I think this passage is so encouraging and kind of enlightening, but in the middle of this, he's saying, don't even try to comprehend him because it's way beyond you, but just trust me on that. You're going to love it. He says, because you know what? You're, you're not even going to have to think about death. You're not even going to have to think about disease that might lead to death. That's all going to be gone. You will no longer die. In fact, he even says, you will be like the angels. You're not going to be an angel. You're going to be like an angel. Don't think, see, this is where people think we're going we're to be these little cherubs that sprout wings and just fly around with our little harps singing. That's so nonsense. We're going to be like angels in the sense that they have a purpose. We're going to have a purpose. We're not going to, our bodies are not going to disintegrate. We're going to have one focus. You're going to be like the angels in all the good parts. But yet you're going to be individuals that he's going to know by name. I found verses, and I know Isaiah 43 one is one of my favorites where, where God says, I've formed you, I've created you. I've summoned you by name, you are mine. He knows us by name. We're individuals. But let me just go on it. Because it says, they are, we are God's children he said, that's what I want you to know. You're my child, and like any good parent, and I'm not only a good parent, I'm the perfect parent, you are going to love the life you have. 
And since they are children, since they are children of the resurrection, and the reason that's possible is because you chose to believe the cross, you chose to believe the empty tomb. You chose to fall into pieces on the cornerstone. But then he kind of goes back to get them to understand because he, again, he's well aware that these Sadducees are supposed to believe in the first five books. So he goes back to the passage in Exodus chapter 3 that they should know perfectly well. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I went back to Exodus chapter 3, and I reread the story of the burning bush. And, and the Lord said the words to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that word, I am, just resonated with me, not only because we know that that's Jesus' name, that's God's name, I am, but we also know when he says, I am, that means it's current. If, he, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, if they were dead, then he would not say, I, I am. He would say, I was. Oh, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God. It was wonderful. Oh, that was such a great time. No, I am the God. And with that distinction, quoting that verse, he wants those Sadducees to see, and that hasn't changed. He's still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is he is not the God of the dead, but the living, for to him all are alive. To me, that was a jump out of my chair verse. Because if we have any questions at all, and even though we don't understand, I mean, we, you know, we, we just can't even fathom someday really actually seeing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David. And, I mean, that's just almost too much to attain. But, you know, to make it more personal, you know, you think of, I think of my mom, dad, and you think of loved ones. They're so precious to you. To me, this is so exciting. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. They are alive. No question about it. Wouldn't you just love to be able to see what's happening? So, see, in the midst of all this, if you're looking as a believer, there's still such hope, and there's still something so good to hang on to. We've got such a future Verse 39, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. Do you think that's what Jesus wanted to hear? Do you think he wanted a, a nice compliment? Oh, well said. Good job. Oh, he could have cared less. He would have loved to have them say, oh, I never thought of it that way. I think I need you to sit down with me and I think we need to discuss this more. I think I need to understand. I think I'm beginning to see myself. That's what Jesus would have loved to heard. He would have much rather heard that than, oh, good job, nice job, well said. But they didn't. See, so another portion of that story of the scripture here. Look how hard he tried. Look how he tried to get their questions answered. Even though he knew their motive, he still tried to get them to see. Verse 41, then Jesus said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110.1, see, again he brings them back to a scripture passage that they know well. Did you ever think about what this means? Did you ever think that David himself, he calls, he calls the Messiah Lord, and yet Jesus comes from the line of David, which calls, which means he's the son of David. And so he's getting them to think, have you ever thought? About David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. David calls him Lord, Jesus said. How then can he be his son? Now this is... 
I noticed that there was no explanation after this one. It's kind of like Jesus says, you know what? You should, you shouldn't think about this one. You know, I want you to just ponder this. I want you to come up with a reason here. Again, you can quote it like mad, but do you know what it means? Do you ever realize that even David needed a savior? It kind of reminded me of when, when they told Jesus that his mother and brothers were there, and Jesus said, who's my mother and who's my brothers? You know, It almost sounded cold at first, but Jesus was transitioning. He wanted Mary and his family to know that, yes, he is physically their son and brother, but now he's moving into the fact that he is now their savior. That's what he's come for. He's their savior. And this is what he wants these religious men to see. So he just kind of lets that go. And then in verse 45, Luke inserts this. He wants this detail in there while all the people were listening. So they all were listening, but Jesus then turns and says this to his disciples, even though everybody's in earshot. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, beware, beware of the teachers of the law. Boy, this had a ruffle a few feathers because even though they're listening, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you got to beware of those phonies. Be, be, be aware that there's going to be people. There's going to be people in in your ministry. They're going to look so perfectly religious, but they're just not real. And you can tell if you're if you're really looking. You can tell by their actions. He said, "Look, they walk." They like to walk around with flowing robes and they love to be created in the marketplace and they have the most important seats in the synagogues in the places of honor at banquets. You know, all that I could understand. Jesus is, he's saying, you know, oh, they love the attention. Oh, they love the privilege. They, they, they love to be important. You know, they, they walk around like this. They, they are so arrogant, and I, I understand what Jesus is saying. But then he said this phrase, and I did not quite understand this phrase. They devour widows' houses. Now, you're, you're talking about the, the church. The, you're talking about these leaders of the church who... When are, are these women most vulnerable after they've lost a spouse and they are, they are trusting their religious leaders? And it says they devour widows' houses. So again, I just, I just had to search that. And I did not know, and maybe you didn't know either, but the religious leaders of that day, the people who ran the temple, who taught in the temple and that, they didn't receive a salary. And yet we know that all of them were worth a lot. They all were wealthy. So where in the world did they get all of their fancy robes and all of their wealth? And they got it from gifts. Jewish teachers could not be paid, but they could receive gifts, and so they became, and because their hearts were the way they were, they were masters at manipulation and flattery and false compassion. In fact, they taught, they taught that the greatest act that someone could do was to give money to the teachers that are teaching them. I had no idea. And they knew how to do that so well. And they became wealthy because of it. But they, they used the opportunity to manipulate widows at their time of need and probably stole the money that they had because they were in the state where they just trusted and believed their leaders. 
To me, that was appalling. That was about the lowest. And then the way Jesus finishes that sentence, because after they do that, they have no conscience. They probably walk right smack back in the temple and the synagogue and then just give their lengthy, wordy prayers. Jesus ends that chapter. And he's, he's pretty much saying, because they're listening, he's telling the disciples, because he, he looked at his disciples, beware of that. But he knows that those other ears are listening. And so it's like he's saying, I know what you're doing. And he ends this by saying, such men will be punished most severely. Oh, they might be walking around in their fancy robes right now, and they might think they, they have everybody fooled, but he said they're going to be punished most severely. So you take a look at this lesson. I thought, what, do, what is the purpose of Luke 20? I mean, it was just, again, time and time again, trying to get Jesus. But there were some really great parts in there, weren't there? But what lesson do I personally want to get? And I hope you evaluate and think, you know, because I think you and I are probably known by people as religious. In fact, you know, I've told you this before. That my mom introduced me one time and said, this is my daughter, and she takes her religion very seriously. I mean, I had to sit her down and explain that one. But I think, you know, I, I know she meant well, but it just didn't come out right. But I think when people do look at a church people, especially committed people that go regularly and that kind of thing, and they know how involved we are, they think we're very religious. But I think a lesson like tonight really helps us to, again, take a look at your heart. Make sure. I always say, I want to be the same on the inside as I am on the outside. Because they've shown me that you can have it all on the outside, but yeah, you're just you're just terrible on the inside. That you might be impressive to people, but you're not impressive to the one that you really want to impress. Because you're so grateful for what he's done for you. I wanted that. If somebody had the ability to just take my heart right out and just whip it open, they would say, Looks the same. Because Paul does talk similar about that. And I mean, not ripping the heart out, but he does say that there's going to be a day that a big light is going to be shown and all is going to be revealed. All motives of why we did what we did. So a lesson like Luke 20, I think it really... I just want to be real, don't you? He loves sincere seekers. He loves it when we walk into this place and, and he sees us during the week and he sees how much we want to know this and so we're committed to taking the time. He knows if we're sincere seekers. Or he knows if we're playing games and you just want to make an appearance. He knows what kind of heart soil you have. He knows that this is going to be effective and it's going to start changing you more to be like Christ in character. This was a very serious chapter. And that's why I inserted that last song, the last minute, Lord, take my life and make it holy. Thine fill my poor heart with thy great love. Divine, take all my will that's a hard line. Take on my will, my myself. Did you notice? I put self in big letters. Take myself. I wanna. I wanna have self broken to pieces. Myself and my pride. I now surrender, Lord. And in me abide. Heavenly Father, thank you for making it so clear that we cannot miss it. Now it's up to us, isn't it? So, Father, we do want to be sincere seekers. We want to be sincere in our praise and our worship. We want to be sincere in our study. Father, we, we want day by day become more and more like Jesus. 
to be able to handle life as it comes to us, to be, under, to be able to handle difficult people. Father, we just thank you so much for just making sure that everything is spelled out so clear for us. Oh, we thank you for your word, for your Holy Spirit who takes the words on the page and makes them come alive. Thank you for Christ alone, cornerstone, weak, make strong in the Savior's love. And through the storms, he is Lord of all. What a way to live. In Jesus' name, amen.